Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. Hey, no, but I'm seriously excited to be here with you tonight and to come to the conclusion of our Gospels series where we've explored over the last several weeks how the Gospel, and what we mean by that word, is this incredible news, this good news, euangelion is the root word of that, we've discussed this, that Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came in flesh to live a perfect life, bear our sins upon the cross, dying a death that we deserved, being raised in victory three days later, conquering the effects of sin, which is death. That is the gospel. And over the last several weeks, we have explored through the gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how they each elaborate uniquely upon the gospel itself. And Kate, Nathan, and I have had the privilege of exploring these unique perspectives with you, noting the surprising kingdom of God in Matthew, the surprising call of Jesus in Mark, the surprising invitation of Jesus in Luke. And last week, I thought Nathan did an incredible job elaborating for us and opening our eyes to the shocking crucifixion of Jesus and John. And so this week we get to wrap up in what I hope is a very practical and helpful way. It's going to be slightly different in tone. But this week I want us to look at the simple, profound truth about faith in Romans. So the truth of the matter, based on all that we have covered up to this point regarding the gospel, is that the gospel demands response. And what I mean by that is when you are confronted with the gospel, and I mean that in the most positive of ways, when you are shared or the gospel is shared with you or you sit under the teachings of the gospel, there is no neutral standing before the gospel. You either accept it and understand who Jesus is and why he came, or you reject it, even if it's subtly, even if it's naively, you reject it. There is no neutral ground in that. The gospel demands response. And as most of you know, the first time we respond with trust and belief in the gospel, namely that Jesus is who he said he is and has accomplished what he set out to do, that's what we recognize as coming to faith in Jesus for salvation. That initial moment where we believe and understand and grasp what he's done. However, as we continue to walk in faith, I believe the gospel still requires a response from us, not for salvation, but for our sanctification. And you probably heard us use that word before, but sanctification is just a really nice churchy word that means we become more and more like Jesus as we progress in this life until we meet him face to face. It's this response that I want to explore more tonight as we wrap up our Gospels series. And I thought it would be helpful for us to do this by discussing faith. One of the simplest definitions of faith and probably the most well-known verses regarding faith in the Bible is Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But what does this verse mean? Well, John Piper shares four truths that I think are helpful regarding a life of faith that will be helpful for us understanding this better tonight. He begins by sharing that there is always a promised work of God to look to. Always a promised work of God to look to. It's what Hebrews 11 calls things hoped for. We believe that he's already accomplished so many things, but we know that there's a promise yet to come, namely the return of Jesus and victory. Secondly, he notes there is always an inner response to those promises. 
Next, there is an outworking of that inner response through outward expression, meaning our trust in God's promises leads us to action. And lastly, the one who believes the Lord will enjoy some measure of God's rewards now, meaning it affects your life currently. But we trust that our great reward comes when we are face to face with him for eternity. So we can see this as acknowledging his blessings in our lives, the opportunities we had to participate in what he's doing, etc. But we look with great anticipation and expectation to either go home to him before he returns through our natural death or when he returns in victory. But what I want us to take from this tonight as we discuss faith are these two middle things that he notes, these two central truths in Piper's list, that there's an inner response and an outward expression. Because you see, an inner response is critical when it comes to acknowledging what the Lord has promised. It flavors everything else we do, every interaction we have with the Lord, but also with one another. In the book of James, chapter 2, you can read that faith without works is dead. And there's a lot of confusion often about what that means, especially in conflict with how we look at what Paul teaches about, you know, salvation comes through grace alone, by faith alone, etc. However, they're not at odds with one another. James is very helpful because we need to grasp that our lives must exhibit faithful actions as evidence of God's salvation being effective in our lives, meaning that inner response is real. And I wholeheartedly agree with James, but to understand the fuller picture, I don't want us to just get stuck on faith without works is dead. More than that, I want us to understand that faith without trust is false. Faith without trust is false. This is the inner response that Piper discusses. This is where faith for salvation comes into view. It is in the inner response of humanity to God that we see the power of saving faith begin to take hold. It's what you find in Ephesians chapter 2, those very familiar verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In response to the Lord's grace and by his power, we are able to, we are able through faith to accept what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We can grasp what God the Father has done for us by sending, sacrificing, and resurrecting his son Jesus. And notice too that God enables this inner response. Without him moving in us, we cannot accept truth. Our faith is not merely our choice, but an inner working of the Holy Spirit as it goes before and through the proclamation of the gospel. So to be as clear as I can about this tonight, I want you to understand with me that saving faith is the result of God's desire for our hearts. Saving faith is the result of God's desire for our hearts. So if you've ever had a question of whether or not you mean something to the Lord or whether or not you are worthy to be saved, I will tell you, you in your personhood, in your humanity, you are not worthy to be saved. But through his grace and his mercy and, of course, through the sacrifice of his only son, you have been made his if you accept it. His desire is for our hearts. Our inner response to his calling is dependent upon his work, his promises, and his own faithfulness. Namely, who he is as creator God. His word is trustworthy. That's very loud. His word is trustworthy. And if we're all honest tonight, don't our hearts long to rest in trust? How many of you are constantly questioning something? 
Okay, we should all be raising our hands here. We live in a world where we should be questioning at least something each day. How peaceful does it strike you to think that there's one in whom we can find absolute and utter trust? Don't we get so tired of being cynical and skeptical? Because the Lord's promises, they are backed by his loving actions, namely his steadfastness or his character. So our hearts find rest in trusting him for our salvation. Peace, completely known by the Father. This is faith. And for our purposes tonight, I think it will be helpful for us to recognize that when we talk about faith, the biblical term that we translate as faith more closely resembles the word trust than how we typically use the word faith in our common vernacular today. Wayne Grudem states it this way. He says, the word trust is closer to the biblical idea of faith. The more we come to know a person, the more we see in that person a pattern of life that warrants trust, the more we find ourselves able to place trust in that person to do what he or she promises or to act in ways that we can rely on. This is what we get to experience with the creator of all. There is no question of what the pattern will be. Unlike our interpersonal relationships, when we come to God the Father, we can trust that he is who he says he is, he does what he says he will do, and he will continue to do what he's promised he will do. So for me, and I hope you will meet me here in this, this evening, faith must mean trust. Faith must mean trust, and I say this for two reasons. First, faith must mean trust in the Lord because I depend upon him and what he has done based upon his word and his promises held within his word. And what I mean by that is his, his word here, but also his revelation through the Holy Spirit when you hear the gospel and he affects you and he convicts you of sin and wants to change your heart. I have to trust in him because I depend upon him. I need to depend upon him. Without trusting what he has shared both through the scriptures and through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, i.e. what we have seen over the last five weeks now through the gospels, Without that trust, I have no grounds for my salvation because everything that we've heard about is what he has done. I don't have assurance or security for eternity because without what he has done, I have no grounds for my salvation. I think you get the pattern here. Without trust, our faith becomes something we seek to produce versus something which God produces within us. And at that point, it's not actual faith. Helmut Thielicke, a German theologian that I think everyone should read, puts it this way. Faith is in permanent relationship with the word. And he's using the capital W there, meaning Jesus. With the word, and can little be separated from it as rays can be from the sun. Faith detached from the word and trust, robbed of its intentionality, degenerate into an attitude of soul which man regards as produced by his own power. That is a very eloquent way of saying you cannot generate your own faith. You cannot generate your own trust and produce it or churn it up in your soul enough to say that I am worthy of salvation. That's not how it works. Our permanent relationship with the word can be little separated from it as rays can be from the sun. Faith is dependent upon the Lord through trusting him in what he promises in scripture. And so Telica, like Piper, suggests that faith does not begin with itself but with a prior history. And I would say with a prior person meaning it relies upon that which has already been accomplished by God. It's the things we've already said. Based upon his promises, 
those already fulfilled and those yet to be fulfilled. So the second reason that I want us to see faith as trust is because trust is a journey. Trust is a journey. Like the Gruden quote I shared a moment ago, we take time to give our trust to others, don't we? I hope you do. I hope you don't go blindly into relationships and be like, man, they deserve my absolute and utter devotion. Because we know that that can lead to a lot of pain and heartache. I'm not saying go into everything cynical, but at the same time, like, it takes a while for us to understand that someone is trustworthy. Trusting someone is based upon their character and their actions, so it takes a little bit of time. We might trust our first impression of them and want to see more of their actions, but we have to have experiences with those actions to understand that they are actually trustworthy. You guys get me, right? Because that is true, trusting someone also relies upon being in relationship with that person, at least in some way, shape, or form. It is very difficult to fully trust someone without knowing them, without experiencing them and witnessing how they live, the choices that they make, the way that they treat other people, the way that their interactions are seen by others. But this is how God steadies us in faith. He is trustworthy. He is unchanging. And our faith is built upon our dependency upon him, keeping his word and fulfilling what he promises but it's pretty difficult to know what he promises without seeking to know him. Without spending time with him, one-on-one through study and in prayer, conversing with him, getting to know his quirks, getting to know and offering up yours so that he can redeem them. So faith as trust leads us toward an intentional relationship with the Lord, which is its own journey of sorts. And Karl Barth, another theologian that you should get to know, says this. He says, Christian faith occurs in the encounter of the believer with him in whom he believes. It consists in communion, not merely in identification with him. This is a major, major, major point of emphasis for us today. Because there are so many people in this current culture within the West that would claim the banner of Christianity, but mean it based upon sociopolitical status and a nominal standing that they don't even know the person that died for them. Rather, they enjoy the label and what it gives them. It is very true, it is accurate, and it is terrifying. Because for those of us that want to show the world a loving Savior who died for them, it is difficult to weed through the arrogance of those who would have their way, claiming to be what we know we are. But that's because they don't know the person. They identify with the movement They identify with the label, but they don't have the personal relationship with the one who saves them. And this is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to faith, in my mind. Faith is not just an assent to certain truths. It's not an intellectual assent. It is not merely believing a list of facts or even historical notations about a person. It is not just identifying ourselves with a Savior. And I want you to hear me there. It is not just identifying ourselves with a Savior because you know who's carrying the burden of that action. We are. We are identifying ourselves with a Savior. We are doing the work of saying that it's part of our personality, our identity, etc. No, but actual faith is communion with Christ. It is trusting and abiding in Jesus. And I want us to look at a biblical example of this. If you will, we're going to open up our Bibles, and I hope you have a physical copy with you. But if you don't, please come see me, Nathan, Kate, or Nick afterwards. We would love to give you your own physical copy. But of course, if you have it on your phone, 
Let's whip that out as well. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to skip around a little bit in this chapter, so just follow along with me. So hear now the word of the Lord according to the Apostle Paul. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now skip down with me to verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you're willing and able, when I say this is the word of the Lord, please say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love this passage. I love this whole chapter. It isn't just that Paul identifies us all with Abraham or includes us as the children of God when we trust in Jesus for our salvation. That's there. But it is the fact that even before Jesus walked the earth, God counted Abraham as righteous. But how? Because of his faith in the Lord. It was not Abraham's ability to believe that saved him. Rather, his trust and dependency upon God that was counted to him as righteousness. Now, that is a nuanced thing, and I, trust me, I get that. But we need to understand that it's not his ability to believe that saved him, but his trust and dependency upon God that was counted to him as righteousness. It was not his cognitive ability. It was not how intellectual he was or how he could logic his way out of something, but his trust. And his trust was no mere one-time thing. Rather, based upon that passage and, of course, the examples we have of his life, it was his lifestyle. And Paul seeks to emphasize this. Throughout Abraham's story, you can see his mistakes, of course. He was imperfect. But you can also see a growing dependence upon God. And I want you to see this with me. We're just going to do a quick overview of his life. In Genesis 12, God calls him to leave his family and home and follow him toward a new land and a new purpose. And in 12, verse 4, we can read the words, So he went. 
In Genesis 13, 18, after seeing the promised land and hearing from God that he wanted him to walk the stretches of the land, we read the words, so Abram moved his tents, meaning he followed the Lord's commands. In Genesis 15, 6, the Lord clarifies his covenant with Abram, and Abram believes God, trusts God to do what he says he will. And it's at this point, during the covenantal exchange, that the Lord counts it to him as his righteousness. And later in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 3a, you can read these words. After these things, God tested Abraham. So everything we've already just talked about, this overview. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Are you sensing a pattern here? So he went in Genesis 12. So Abram moved his tents in Genesis 13. Abram believes God. So Abram believes God in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 22, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took his son. I find it difficult to believe that Paul merely meant to point to Genesis 15, that one moment when Abram believed that God was the God of his covenant with him that made him righteous. I don't find it difficult to believe that Abraham's lifelong dependency upon and trust in the Lord as the one who held him and provided for him is that which was counted to him as righteousness. There's a difference there. It was not a transactional thing. It was a relationship. You see, Abraham, even though he made mistakes, he communed with the Lord. He knew God. And Abraham sought to actively live in God's presence and trusted the Lord would keep his word regarding the promises he made. And I think it's really interesting and kind of funny that Paul was like, he was good as dead. <laughs> right? That was in the Bible. Like, he was good as dead. He was so old that he should have doubted that God would give him a child. But he didn't. He trusted the Lord would keep his word regarding the promises that he made time and again. And that time and again type trust, I think, is better described as an abiding faith. An abiding faith. Abiding faith is faith that does not merely look to one moment in life where we have said a prayer for our salvation. Rather, it's an ongoing trust that salvation has been won for us in Christ that leads us now to live like it and to live in it. And I know I've repeated myself a lot tonight, but I really want you to get this. Abiding faith is faith that does not merely look to one moment in life where we may have said a prayer as our salvation. Rather, it is an ongoing trust that salvation has been won for us in Christ that leads us now to live like it and live in it. I am not naysaying that moment when the Lord brings you to a place of repentance and acceptance of faith. That is not what I'm saying. Rather, I'm saying that moment is not your defining characteristic. Your defining characteristic is that you are adopted as his child and your life is forever changed. So trust is now an identifier of your personhood. Someone do me a favor. This is crowd participation moment. Someone define the word abide for me. To remain in. To remain in, yes. Come on, hit me. That's a good one. Dwell, Dwell. yes, really good. Anybody else? This side's been quiet. Hmm? Isn't there like living in a tent? Yes, living in a tent. Go? Not go, it's actually stay, yeah? To live in. To live in, yes. So this abiding faith, what does abide mean? It means to dwell in, to rest in, to reside. To reside. 
Do, do people, people typically reside in areas that they don't trust or that they don't feel safe in if they can help it? Just a question. Are you like saying, hey, I choose the lofts willingly? <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> no, it's by necessity. Sorry, but I mean, come on. It's often by necessity that you need to sign a lease so you go where you can. But people don't typically reside in areas that they don't trust or that they don't feel safe in. Why? Why is that? It's because when we think of where we reside, we think of home. We think of safety. We think of security. We think of normalcy. Things that don't change. Things that are dependable. We look at our homes as the place where we can fully be ourselves. And we don't have to put on a show. That's what abiding means. Abiding is dwelling in with security, peace, and assurance. And it also carries with it the sense of putting down roots or calling someplace or someone home. In all the scenarios from scripture that I shared regarding Abraham's life of faith, it is difficult to ignore the fact that he readily trusted God in ways that depicted his faith as if he were indeed abiding in God. He dwelled with God. He trusted in the Lord. And after all of this, you may be wondering, what can I do with this tonight? How do I put any of this into action? Well, I pray we each develop a sense of abiding faith in God ourselves. I want this to be our everyday response to the gospel that we've heard about, elaborated upon over the past several Tuesday nights. I want us to commune with God, depending upon him so deeply that our every action becomes flavored by his will for our lives. My hope for each of us in here and those that could not be here tonight is that there's nothing in our lives that is outside of his will or outside of his desire for our lives, that we will be so in tune with him that there would be such a richness of closeness in relationship with him that the world would just be, what is happening? And there's a word used in the account of Abraham's test of faith when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac that I want us to look at very briefly. It's a small Hebrew construct that carries a huge punch throughout scripture, in my opinion. It's the word that carried Abraham's response to God when he asked where Abraham was. Do you remember the phrase? Abraham, where are you? What does he say? Exactly. Here I am. The Hebrew word is hinani. Say that with me. Hinani. Hinani. It literally means, behold, me. Right? Like, could you see yourself walking in a room and being like that? You don't even need an entry song. You're just your own entry song. Behold, me. I'm here. It's this idea of an exclamation that's considered in context as a loving and responsive call that indicates the readiness of the person that is addressed to listen to and obey the person that has addressed them. Here I am. As in, here is my whole person ready for whatever you want of me. Hinani. It's also the response of Isaiah in Isaiah 6.8 when he's in the midst of his vision and the Lord asks him, whom shall I send to the people of Israel? Now, I want to remind you, that moment, the, the ministry that he's asking Isaiah to join in is not a pleasant one. He's being sent to a people who will ignore his preaching. Whom shall I send to the people of Israel? What is Isaiah's response? Here I am, send me. Now, I don't want to give too much theological weight to this phrase. Rather, I want us to focus on the willing response from each of these faithful men. 
I know we were not present in these moments historically, but based on how they're recorded in the Bible, I think it's safe to say that both both of these men immediately responded to the Lord in the affirmative. And for me personally, and I hope for you, their eagerness is striking and it's really telling. It's telling because you can sense that they are very aware of the Lord's presence in their lives. When God calls, they answer. And this response to the Lord is indicative of a close relationship, of an abiding, dependent faith. They know their father's voice, and they desire to respond in kind. Now, here's a really stupid analogy, so I'm just going to be like, completely honest with you. I've done my best to like, subtly train my children when we're in public. I don't use their names. I go, pss, pss. It's amazing. Like, it's like the best trip party trick ever. You know, like I had a dog, Rowdy, once, and I click trained him. You know what I'm talking about? With a click, click, and they like, do whatever you want. This is kind of like that, except they don't behave. They just turn their heads. They never behave. But that's fine. That's another story. But in public, I can go, and they are like this, so they know that we're there. Now, it's a silly analogy, but track with me here for a second. They know that it's me. I am their earthly father, and I'm calling for their attention. Imagine how much more our attention should be called and how responsive we should be if we're in a loving, abiding relationship with God the Father. He should not have to yell at us to grab our attention, rather say, Where are you? Here I am. With each response, the Lord calls them to action. Isaiah to preach the word of God and Abraham to exhibit his faith through sacrifice. So what I want for us is to develop such communion with the Lord that when he calls, we immediately answer, here I am. Because we trust him completely. Because answering that way means we have not forgotten our love for the Lord. It means that he is our priority and that our hearts actually dwell with him. And in him. And Jesus' own words echo this intent in John 15, verses 4 through 8, where he states, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Two things from this. One, I want us to abide in the Lord so much that when we ask for anything from him, we're asking what he wants us to ask from him. Does that make sense? Or was that too much like verbal mud? I want us to be so in love with the Lord, so in communion with God that when we ask him for things, we're asking for the things that he would want us to ask him for. And then from that, that would lead us to bearing much fruit because we would be asking him for opportunities to share the gospel with those that we have been putting off for so long because we're a little nervous about it or we're afraid of their judgment. Because he says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I want us to have this faith with works. I want us to accomplish the works that God has set us apart for, like we read in Ephesians 2 earlier. And I desire for each of us that as we live in the Lord, growing in our trust of him, that we begin to step out in faith and answer his call with an emphatic, here I am. So one way you can apply this is to seek to respond outwardly to that inner response of your hearts to the gospel. We have opportunities to produce fruit, but often we're too afraid. So like Abraham, let's start taking chances for the Lord's sake. 
Let's offer our comfort up for the kingdom of God and for the sake of the gospel. Ask the Lord to show you the areas of your life where you need to trust him more. I'm about to probably step on some toes, and I apologize because I'm stepping on my own here too. For some of us, that may mean giving up some forms of entertainment, some relationships, some social media platforms even, that are not bad in and of themselves, but they distract us from our walk with Jesus. In other words, we idolize these things in our lives. They, they take up so much of our time and our energy that we are practically and functionally worshiping them. And they inadvertently hinder you from truly abiding with Christ. I don't know what those things are for you. These are just examples. But you can ponder these things. Take that step tonight and say, here I am, Lord. Take these. For others of us, this may mean submitting your future plans to the Lord and recognizing that he may be leading you away from the vocation or area of learning that you thought you'd be pursuing your whole life. And some, instead, to life on the mission field, some to vocational ministry. But regardless, each of us to the contextual ministry and the vocation that he calls us to. Because no matter where you go, you are a minister of the gospel as a follower of Jesus. No matter what you do vocationally, you are a minister of the gospel. So maybe tonight is that moment where you take that step. You develop your trust in God that, bit, that little bit more and say, here I am. But regardless, as believers in Jesus, there's an undeniable call upon our lives. And that is to share the gospel faithfully to those around us who need Jesus. Later in Romans, in chapter 10, Paul writes this. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen to that promise. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But it continues. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Amen. An abiding faith is a faith that is vocal because it denotes a heart so shaped by the truth that has set it free from sin. This good news of the gospel that it cannot help but share it with others. So even now, I'm, I'm wondering who the Lord might be bringing to your mind tonight that you need to faithfully share with. I'm also wondering who in here tonight needs to take that leap of faith and accept the truth of the gospel and place your faith in Jesus for your own salvation. Because he's been working on your heart and you know this is true, but you haven't trusted it yet. And I'm not so naive to think that this will be easy or that it will ever be easy. <laughs> Hardships will come. Tests of faith will arise. Rejections by others will occur. But if we genuinely have an abiding faith, a trust developed from doing life with God, from knowing him so richly and deeply, then even in the midst of hardship, we can boldly answer, here I am when the Lord calls us to action yet again. I want to share a few more words from Piper as we close. He states this. Saving faith is a life of faith. The evidence of authentic faith is its pressing on. Faith that saves from destruction is faith that lives day by day. This is abiding faith. And I pray for each of us tonight that this is our daily response to the incredible truth of the gospel that we've explored these last several weeks.
that we don't merely believe these truths, but we trust the one who makes them true. We need both of those things. That we rest in him for our identity. That we abide in him, securing who we are as his children. And that we are always ready for when he calls us to bear witness to his goodness and grace. And that we are always willing and able to say, here I am. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Lord, that we...